do just want to say a really warm welcome to everyone here. However, just to embarrass you, if it's your first time at an advance event, why don't you just stick your hand up? Because we would love to wave. Brilliant. You are welcome. I trust that we will get to know you over the coffee breaks, the lunch breaks, and all those kind of things. We have one special visitor who is here for the first time. It's Andre from the Ukraine. So let's welcome him as he comes out. Hi. Uh, Andre's going to be speaking to us a couple of times tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to that. Just been getting to know him a little bit tonight. But we thought it'd be great just to connect with him, find out a little bit about him and his story, and then stir us with faith. So we come and hear from him this tomorrow. So, okay, so tell us where you're from and a little bit about your family. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's such a privilege to be here. Yeah, um, I'm originally from the east of Ukraine. I'm married. And we have three boys. And, uh, yeah, it's... Now, look, we've seen loads on the telly about Ukraine, and that I've heard... You've moved twice. Tell us a little bit about what's caused you to move. Yeah, uh, for us, this journey starts uh, 2014. Uh, I used to lead a church for 20 years in one place, but then war started, so we and uh, our friend who leads a church in the southeast of Ukraine he's, has been built, killed, and we spent one year uh, just to help his church and family and churches around to go through this, then we moved to, actually we, we just felt that God is leading us to stay near the airport to travel because we felt God is going to use this big move of Ukrainians into Europe and into all around the world for the mission. So we felt it and, and actually we see it. So it's... He's not telling us half the story. I said, oh, so I know you had a house there. What happened to it? He said, well, we moved on, so I just gave my house to someone else who took on the church. I thought, wow, that is real radical stuff. Uh, I know you're based in Bedford now, but obviously you're still encouraging and supporting churches and church planting. Before we get on about this year, tell me what you've done with churches in Ukraine. Because I think you were telling me, was it you started with 15 churches? Um, yeah, actually, when I started to lead our little group of churches... We had about 15, and uh, when war started, it's just spread it. Uh, tomorrow, probably, I will share a little bit how it works. Uh, the best accel acceleration in our mission, it's actually... Wow. Yeah. But you've gone... So no strategy. No <laughs> strategy. It almost just... sounds like the Book of Acts, doesn't it? <laughs> actually, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know you said you had 15 churches that have grown to 55 and then now with war, literally, people are all around Europe and planting churches. You know, numbers, it's quite tricky. Yes. Uh, when the war started second time, I don't know how we are making decisions, but all our main our work actually east and southeast of Ukraine. So when, when the war uh, started, most of our people, in some places, 95% just spread it out. So when people asking how many churches, I said, oh, it's a good, good question. How many people, good question. Uh, but you know, it's not the, the, the story. So we know that God is just sowing the seeds. And it's our expectation. And uh, uh, we see new church plants started with the people who are uh, 
settling in different places. It's my primary role now to, uh, to visit, to see the potential for church plants, to shape the team, uh, encourage people, help just to be healed, restored in Christ and move, move forward. This is and I know you were saying even now, I know you're traveling from Bedford two weeks a month out and supporting and encouraging. How many churches are you looking to plant this year? Uh, we have started 2023. We started to gather church planters, uh, uh, 10 little, little teams for planting 10 new churches. And uh, I, I expect that number will grow because more and more people just settle in. And, you know, after a while, you need time just to to find out where you are and uh, to, to be restored, uh, to be uh, full of faith to start new. So it takes time, but, but yeah, 10 new churches we have started to plant and it's, it's different. In some places it's grown really well. In some places people just learn. And because you know, from Ukraine to Germany, it's, it's a big step. German's not simple language. So to learn language, and uh, German bureaucracy, I think even better than UK bureaucracy. <laughs> so it's, uh, I don't know who was learning from, from whom, but, but it's, <laughs> so it, it takes time, but we, you know, God can wait. So we are learning from him to wait. And uh, yeah, so. <laughs> I know there'd be many challenges on this. And I just ask you, what kept you going? You know, there's been, I know your family's all moved, they're here, they're in English schools. And I just said to you, what, what keeps you going on all this? So, so many church leaders that are facing a challenge and think, why don't I give up? Yeah, simple answer, actually, God's grace. I can, God is leading. This is uh, his presence, uh, this sense of call, not just sense of call. Uh, when, when you're hearing his voice and he's asking to do something and... Yeah, I think it's, it's main, actually. Uh, and tomorrow I'm going to share about uh, more sailing rest roar, roaring. I think uh, quite often we are too focused on what we are going to achieve. And God has his own plans. So I think we need to learn just to, to enjoy his lead. We are so looking forward to tomorrow. Let's give Andre a Thank round you. of applause for introducing himself to us tonight. I know Matt doesn't need any introduction, but I always think it's good to honor him. I know we were there today, and many of us will say, Matt, you've lived us so well in the last two, three years in particular, given of yourself. I know Grace, you've been there as well. We really do appreciate that. We just want to say a massive thank you. We know that actually hearing what God's going to say through you and stirring us is going to really bless us. So thank you so much for all the preparation you've done. Let's give him a round of applause. Thank you, Pete. Well, it's really exciting to have you all here. So this is, as you don't know me, I'm Matt. I'm the pastor here at Gateway Church in this venue. And um, we've just been in this building since the beginning of the year. Just built it last year and been here, in here since January. And so it's a real thrill to have an advanced event in here and have you all, your, you lovely people, in here with us. It's just very exciting. And uh, awesome to have Andre with us. Um, I asked Andre about a year ago if he'd come and be with us. And it's just, yeah, we're looking to be stirred and the theme of church planting and sensing God's lead of us. Right, there are some things which clearly we need to focus on in, a move, in our movement. 
We, need to, we do need to focus on planting churches. That's what we know we're called to, planting and strengthening churches. And we know that in order to help make that happen more, we also need to particularly intentionally learn how to connect with and reach those in their 20s in order to raise up future church planters. And we're going to be talking about some of that stuff tomorrow in terms of planting and connecting with the 20s. But we can't do that just mechanistically. We have to be theological in how we approach this. And our theology can't be dry dogma. It has to be a lived experience of worship, of delight in God. We know the gospel must go to the ends of the earth, and it must go to the depths of our hearts. It's going to be an experience of the presence of God. Um, a couple of weeks back, a few weeks back, Andre and I were both at an event where Toppy Collioso from Enfield, an amazing man, uh, leads a church of one of the biggest churches in the UK, 2,000 people. His kids are the Ezra Collective Band. We're getting so much focus. Just Toppy is an extraordinary guy. He was, he was preaching on treasuring the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was an amazing message. And uh, I had lunch with him after that, and he said that his title actually came from a blog post which I'd written, I'd completely forgotten I'd written, uh, about treasuring the presence of God. And then I looked up, and it was a blog I'd written eight years ago, but forgotten. There's some good stuff in there. You <laughs> <coughs> see, Toppy, Toppy was paying more attention than I was. Um, and then here at Gateway, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John the last few months. And the, the thing which has really been resonating with me, particularly the last few weeks since hearing Tope preach and then the passages have been in John, is about us knowing, experiencing the presence of God and seeing something of his glory. And so apologies to those of you who are from Gateway and here this evening because you're going to be hearing some things you've heard me teach the last couple of weeks. But what I want to look at in our time together now is how God is with us and that we are to glorify him. And I've called this message a delightful doxology. A doxology is a giving of glory to God in worship. So there's some places in the Bible where there are doxologies, where suddenly the scripture goes into this expression of praise, giving glory to God in worship. And that's what I, we've been doing that in a wonderful way already this evening. And that's what I want to focus on now. So uh, we'll mostly be in John, but I actually want to start in, in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 1. And then we're going to go to Matthew 28, beginning and end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1, verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Hasn't it been good to sing the name of Jesus together this evening? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then we get to the end of Matthew, and uh, Jesus speaking to the disciples in the, what we call the Great Commission. The Eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The gospel must go to the ends of the earth and to the depths of our hearts. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
So what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is the way the Gospel begins is with this promise. The Savior is coming. Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew ends with the promise from Jesus, I will be with you to the end of the age. Uh, Abby, can you leave the scriptures up and just keep them up there until I... Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Just so we can see. So when a Bible book begins and ends with the same theme, that tells us that's what the book is about. So the Gospel of Matthew is about God's presence being with us. That's how it begins, that's how it ends, that's what it's about. God is with us. And of course, the whole of the Bible is actually about that. The Bible begins with the presence of God hanging over the chaos of the unformed earth, and it ends with the cry of the church, come Lord Jesus. The whole story is about God being with us. And that's something which we need to treasure, not something we should be indifferent or casual about, that God is with us. And Jesus said in John to the woman at the well, the day is coming when God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. There's this promise of the presence of God. What counts is not the place in which you worship, but that the presence of God is with you as you worship. And so places are not necessarily insignificant. This place is very significant for me. It's taken a huge amount of blood, sweat and tears and pots of cash to make this building happen. This place matters, but what really counts is the presence of God, not the building. And we carry the presence of God with us as God's people. We can worship in spirit and truth anywhere. You can be scattered in a war zone and you still carry the presence of God and worship him in spirit and truth. Now, if we're going to worship that way, we do need an awareness of the glory of God, an awareness of God's glory. And this is such an important theme, the glory of God, but it is hard to understand. Uh, last week, we had a, actually had a prayer meeting in our town uh, across our conurbation, BCP as it's now called, Bournemouth Christ Church and Paul, and we, there was a combined prayer meeting praying for the situation in Israel and Gaza. And after that prayer meeting, uh, four of us who helped lead the congregation here uh, went to the pub to catch up. And we're, in our team meetings at the moment, we're reading through John Piper's book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, which I first read when it first came out, 20 years or whenever. And then I had a sabbatical in the summer, and I read it just a chapter each day, and I found it so enriching and powerful. And I said to the guys, we ought to be reading this in our teams here because it's so packed with pastoral wisdom. If, I'd encourage you, in your, if you're in an elder team, reads Brothers, We're Not Professionals, such a powerful book. But the second chapter in that book is about God's glory. And we were discussing that chapter and really wrestling with it because it's hard to get a handle on what the glory of God means. And what Piper says is that God is God-centered, that God is more concerned for his glory than he is about anything else. And two archetypal scriptures which demonstrate this, one from Isaiah I will not yield my glory to another. And the other from 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God is focused on his own glory. And Piper says this, why is it important to be stunned by the God-centeredness of God? Because many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. It's a subtle danger. We may think we are centering our lives on God when we are really making him a means to our self-esteem. Over against this danger, I urge you 
to ponder the implications that God loves his glory more than he loves us. And that is the foundation for his love for us. Now, we've got to get this. We've got to grasp this. We've got to see that God's glory is good news. God loves his glory more than he loves us. But it is that which is a foundation to guarantee that he does love us. Got to get this the right way round. So what does it then mean to know the glory of God? And as the four of us were talking this around, uh, wrestling with Piper and wrestling with the Scripture and drinking a pint of beer, which helps, uh, Luther said that, do what Luther said. Uh, one of the things we talked about was that probably this is easier to grasp in honor-shame cultures than in our culture. So, you know, British culture or European culture generally is, is more guilt-innocence. Uh, honor-shame cultures look at the world somewhat differently. And for those coming from an honor-shame kind of culture, it's probably easy to grasp something of the sense of glory because in an honor culture, what you want to acquire is honor, it's glory, the sense of prestige which is a bit different from how we tend to think in a guilt-innocence culture, which most of us have grown up in. It's a, a sense of what is ultimately praiseworthy and truly excellent. What is ultimately praiseworthy and truly excellent. And it's very difficult, I think, in our culture to try and get analogies which give a picture of what glory is. And I think maybe when the Queen died and when Charles was crowned, at those moments of great pomp and circumstance... There's, in that, something of that sense of glory. Should be a picture, Abby. Keep up. Come on. Click. There you go. Thank you, Abby. So just, so, this doesn't work for it, but as a Brit, there's something when I see a scene like that which makes me say, wah, we're still a global power. <laughs> Andre's got a very cynical look on his face. There's, there's a, there's, a kind of, there's, a, there's a kind of majesty. Now, that might not be the thing that floats your boat. I think probably the closest, or the easiest to grasp analogy, I think, for what glory is, 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 is comes from sport. And think about when South Africa, again, won the World Cup. <laughs> I just, just, just thought I'd put it out there for you, Saffers. That's Pete with his South African flag socks. Look at... <laughs> honestly. You can take the boy out of South Africa, but you can't take <laughs> South Africa out of um, So Sia Colosi afterwards, if you listen to his speech, it was very passionate, very powerful. He said, this isn't just about the game. This is for the country. We have such a hard time as a country. And South Africa is a country which is going through the mill. And lots of us lots in this room come from South Africa, and lots of us know and love South Africa. But it's unraveling. Six-hour power shortages every day, economy in tatters, terrible crime rates, awful inequality, 40% unemployment. The place is falling apart. And then Sia Colosi says, this is for, there's glory here. So it's not just about winning the game, there's a glory for the nation. And I think in that moment, you kind of get a glimpse of what glory is. Those kind of moments. But of course... God's glory is of a completely different degree, utterly different degree. And uh, the theme of glory is especially prominent in the Gospel of John. Uh, doxology, Greek word doxa, glory. The word doxa, glory, 
glorify, glorified, uh, appears more in John than it does the other three Gospels combined. Um, right at the start of the Gospel, it was in one of the songs we sang, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is, this is what John proclaims, that God's glory is made known in the Son, and the Son made His glory known through His miracles. So the first miracle when Jesus, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, turning the water into wine, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And then the last and the greatest of Jesus' miracles recorded in John is the raising of Lazarus, which is the pivot point of the whole of the Gospel of John. It's the thing around which it all revolves. And when Jesus says, before he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, this illness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And when Jesus performs those miracles, whether it's turning the water into wine or whether it's calling Lazarus out of the grave when he's dead and rotting, what we see there is a glimpse of glory. There's a glimpse of majesty, a glimpse of authority. And our language is entirely inadequate. We have to keep piling up the superlatives and adjectives to try and get a sense of what that glory might be, but we get a picture of it there in the miracles. And then this theme of glory is especially, this is prevalent, prominent throughout the whole Gospel of John, but especially in the high priestly prayer. And this is what I was preaching here last Sunday, um, where in John 17 especially, we see the huge emphasis that Jesus places upon God's glory. So let's read from the beginning of the high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays about his completed work. Now, the work actually wasn't yet complete because Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross. That's about to happen. But Jesus is praying as if it has. And of course, on the cross, John 19, verse 30, Jesus cries out, It is finished. But here in his high priestly prayer, he prays, I have finished, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And this is why it's called the high priestly prayer, because Jesus is completing the work that will bring his people to God. The high priest, as you know, stands between man and God. The high priest makes sacrifices so that sinful humans, <coughs> sinful humans can approach a holy God. And Christ completes that work. His, his sacrifice is what enables you and me to step into the presence of God. And the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, no more sacrifices required, no more temple required, no more high priest going into the holy place once a year with a sacrifice with blood to sprinkle, none of that needed. Finished. Finished. I have finished. I've accomplished, I've completed the work you gave me 
to do. And that makes it possible for us, as Jesus prays here, to know God. The greatest privilege a human can have, to know God. Jesus makes it possible for us to step into relationship with God. What it means to step into eternal life, to step into glory, is knowing God. Jim Packer said, The glory that God shows is the reality of his active presence linked with the quality of his acts themselves. And what Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer is that we get to step into the active presence of God. We get to know God because of the quality of the acts. Because Jesus, our great high priest, has made the final and complete and total sacrifice. Because of the quality of his acts, we get to step into the awesome reality of his active presence. Wow. Now, as I said to our congregation here last Sunday, this is a message for November, the most miserable month. Well, it's a competition, both November and February, the two most miserable months of the year. Lord, please remove them from the... I was not... Let's go to South Africa for six months. Just get over November and February. Hate them. But we get to be in the presence of Jesus. The high priest brings his people into the presence. He brings us into eternal life. Now again, God is God-centered. God is more concerned for his glory than he is for anything else. And Christ accomplishing his mission means glory. Mission accomplished means glory to God. And it's amazing what that means for us. It does mean us entering into life. It means we can know God. We enter into eternal life with him. We're given a glimpse of his glory. Actually, we're given a share in his glory. John 17, 22, Jesus prays, I have, give, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may, may be one as we are one. Now, this, what Jesus says there is just absolutely extraordinary. We're really stepping onto holy ground here. We're, we're stepping into, into mystery. We can be nervous about that word. We can think sometimes it's a kind of a cop-out word, mystery. But there is mystery. We're stepping onto holy ground here that somehow Jesus gives his disciples the glory that his Father had given to them. I mean, what is that about? Now, the Apostle Paul describes this as uh, a link in the chain of, of salvation. Uh, earlier in Romans, I had this on the slides, I've missed it. Earlier in Romans, of course, Jesus, uh, Paul says how although they knew God, they ni neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They didn't glorify God. That's the definition of human lostness, human sinfulness of being in the darkness. And then in Romans 8, Paul writes, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Yeah. 
as this chain of salvation, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And I think glorification is probably a neglected doctrine. I don't think it's something which we teach on very much. And I think that's probably because we struggle to get a handle on what it means. What, does, what, what is glory? How do you describe it? Uh, in the Orthodox Church, there's a theology of deification or theosis, that God's people in the end become like God. And Athanasius, the church father, uh, he said famously, he, Jesus, was incarnate that we might be made God. That's the foundation of Eastern Orthodox theology. But Calvin also said the purpose of the gospel is to make us sooner or later like God. Yeah, it's worth taking a call for that one. Those are extraordinary statements. <laughs> Just think about that. Think about what Jesus says here in John 17. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what we get to partake in. This is what we get to be part of, knowing God. Jesus being crucified, fulfilling, accomplishing the work of his Father, Jesus then being glorified, means that we get to be in the presence of God. Jesus, who was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, who said to the disciples, I will be with you always to the ends of the age. Now, our glorification will be fully realized at the resurrection. At the resurrection, we will receive transformed resurrection bodies, hallelujah. We will somehow reflect Christ in his glorious resurrection body. And exactly what that would be like is, again, mystery. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tries to paint a picture, but you can see he's grappling and struggling to describe it. It's so monumental. So that our glorification will happen at that moment of resurrection life, but we get a taste of it now. We're meant to have a taste of it now. Knowing God and being in the presence of God, we're to treasure that, we're to have a delightful doxology. Now, how, how can we do that? How can we, how can we practice a delightful doxology, a, a delightful, a delighted giving of glory in worship to God? Just a, a couple of things. One is that I think we need to approach the Lord with with liberated awe. I read a book over the summer by a journalist called Matthew Engel, a book called The Way It Was. He's writing a history of, history of Britain through the reign of Elizabeth, 1952 to Elizabeth's death. And one of the things he chronicles, and I found fascinating, was the extraordinary move to informality in British culture. So it's really hard to think how formal the UK was in the 1950s, in all kinds of ways. So certainly in terms of things like dress, so 
whether you were going to a football match or whether you were going to a university lecture, men would have been wearing jackets and ties and probably hats in a very formal way. And people would have been Mr. or Mrs., not first name terms. I mean, it's one of the, we probably don't even notice it, but it's one of, the, one of the most extraordinary social shifts that a two-year-old child in church will call me Matt. Whereas when I was growing up, it was uncle. And in the 50s, it had certainly been Mr. He wouldn't have called the pastor of the church by his first name. And we just take that for granted, but there's been this extraordinary shift to informality in our culture. And that's affected the church as well, because the church has mirrored society in a shift to the informal. And we can confuse informality with liberty. Now, we're charismatic Christians in this room. We believe in liberty in our worship that's been demonstrated here tonight. But genuine spiritual liberty and informality actually are different. Spiritual liberty is a lived experience of our freedom in Christ. It's knowing that we've been set free, knowing that the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice has brought us into... We were dead, we were slaves, and now we are free. And so liberty in worship means focusing on truth in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And informality can help in this because... Well, it's just easier to worship. Uh, some of your experience at weddings often. Uh, my daughter got married here. One of my daughters got married here at Easter, and it was actually amazingly free worship. But so often my experience in, in Christian weddings has been the couple say, we really want to have a free time of worship, which is great. But then everybody's booted and suited. And it's really difficult to be free in worship when you're kind of held by clothes in a way we're not used to. So informality can help us express our freedom, our liberty in worship. Informality can help bring liberty, but it's not enough. And in our informality, we mustn't be casual. And think about how those words, we use them interchangeably, but when it comes to worship, they're poles apart. We talk about being informal and being casual as the same thing. But in our worship, in our approach to God, we can be informal, come with liberty. We come with Abba Father. We come as his children. We come with free access into the throne of grace. But we can't do that casually. And when Pete got us to kneel, <laughs> kind of a bit of an awkward, uncomfortable moment maybe, but that's, it's a sign of actually liberated awe. We're going to get on our faces before God. We're not going to treat God casually. Of course, the... the the great example, or the terrible example of this biblically is 2 Samuel 6, when David's trying to take the ark to Jerusalem, and Azar reaches out and touches the ark, and God strikes him dead. What is going on is Azar is being casual. He's not treating God with awe. And then later on, once David's kind of recovered and licked his wounds and come back to God and worked things out, and they do it properly, and they treat the ark bearing the presence of God with appropriate awe, how does David enter Jerusalem? In informal dress, stripped down to his woolen vest or whatever it was, his ephod thing he was wearing, dancing like a maniac before the Lord. That's liberated awe. That's informal, it's not casual. 
Being casual before God is a very dangerous thing to be. Think about how the, some of the famous statements, Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or as Piper has coined it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. How, how, do, we, how do we see something, get a taste of, honor the glory of God amongst us? It's by liberated awe. And then the second thing is that we need to come before God with faith. That our, our worship, our corporate worship, when we gather to, tonight, our faith has been stirred. And in our churches, this needs to happen as well. Our corporate worship needs to build faith as well as express faith. So our singing, the songs we sing, should express the faith we have. And that means the content of our worship matters. That we do have to weed the songs. You can't just sing the latest hot Christian number. You have to check that the content is worth singing. Because if it's not, it doesn't matter how catchy the tune is. If it doesn't speak truth and point you to who God really is. That faith grows when it has truth to feed on. And so we need songs that teach us truth. We need songs that are not just about our emotions, or there's nothing wrong with that, but songs which magnify the Lord. It's grateful for the songs the band had chosen this evening. We need faith, which enables us to withstand the pressures of life. All of us undergo pressures. Some people have been had to pack up their house and leave because of wars. That's pressure. But you and I have experienced pressures as well in different ways. And we need a faith which can withstand pressure. We need the faith of the Psalms as we come into the presence of God. We need faith that looks into the future. We need faith that celebrates the hope of our full glorification. Called justified, glorified. We need faith which looks to that. And if we're not, if we're not worshipping with faith... All we're doing is singing. Singing is good. But we need to treasure the presence of God. We need to know God's presence amongst us as we worship, as we sing. And so, my exhortation to us is that in all that we're doing, in all that you do, everything you do, give glory to God. In all we're doing, this, this weekend, as tomorrow we think about church planting, we think about how to reach the 20s, and as we hear from Andre what he's going to share with us, in all our desires to church plant and church strengthen, we need to do it all to the glory of God. There needs to be a, a delightful doxology to all that we do. Let that be true of us as a movement, as a family of churches, as a people that we know what it is to enter into the presence of God because of the high priestly work of Christ, that we know what it is to gaze in liberated awe upon the glory of God and get a taste of what that means for us now, to rejoice in our freedom with faith, speaking faith to one another and building our faith as we stand in the presence of God. Let there be a delighted, delightful doxology that comes from our hearts in our mouths, and in all we do. Lord, 
We thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you. Lord, the mystery, the wonder of this prayer you prayed, what it means for us. I pray, I pray Lord, that we would, even this weekend, get a, a greater glimpse of the glory of God. I pray that we would know that, yes, we have been in the presence of the Lord. And our spiritual eyes would be open to see more of your glory. Yeah, that worship to the glory of God would pour from us and would shape everything that we do. In your name and to your glory we ask it, King Jesus. Amen.